Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Delighted to welcome to the stage uh, Adam Foss. Adam was an assistant district attorney in Suffolk County in Boston. He was awarded the 2017 Nelson Mandela Changemaker of the Year Award and uh, the Next Generation Leader NAACP Award. He's a visiting senior fellow at Harvard Law School. He's a staunch advocate for criminal justice reform and has formed uh, a not-for-profit along those lines called Prosecutor Impact. Uh, he's going to be speaking on Swords and Shields, a discussion of power, privilege, and opportunity. Adam. How are we doing? Good. We good? Comfortable? Feeling good? Too bad. <laughs> I'm about to take the air out of the room, uh, and it's going to get uncomfortable. Sorry. This is going to be uncomfortable for some of you. It's going to be uh, very resonant for others of you. Uh, for those of you who are uncomfortable... Um, I'm going to ask you just not to do the thing that we do when we get uncomfortable, which is like fold our arms or run for the exits or get that cup of coffee that we've been burning for. Just like sit in your discomfort because to be able to get up and walk away from it is a privilege that lots of people don't have. There are people who wake up uncomfortable because of the skin that they're born in or they're uncomfortable when they're out in the street because of their identity or their sexual preference or their religion. They can't run away from those things. So Please, just for the next 25 minutes, if you get uncomfortable, just like sit through it and listen. And if you find things that I say like offensive or uncomfortable or hurtful, um, please know that I do the most I can to make everything I say factual. So if you're mad or upset about the facts, that's a you problem. Process that. F try to figure out why it bothers you to see a slide like Dr. Newman put up about the diversity of APSA. Why does that, why does that bother you so much? My name is Adam John Foss. To start the uncomfortable conversation, though, I want to talk about uh, my travel habits. Over the last three years, I've traveled about a million and a half miles, 1.5 million miles on the board. And as a result, I am like triple, quadruple, platinum, everything. And so I get to go on the plane whenever I want, and I get to sit wherever I want, and I'm like, I'm, I'm an aisle person, just love the aisle. And with being in the aisle comes the responsibility that you're like the gatekeeper for the, the row. <laughs> and so about two months ago, I was sitting in my aisle seat. I'm one of the first on the plane. I just like to be on the plane. And uh, a young lady came up and said, excuse me. And I said, oh, hello. Window seat, cool. So I got up and she sat down. And then another young man came and he said, oh, excuse me, I'm in the middle seat. And I was like, oh, that sucks. But <laughs> there you go. He sat down. And then I looked across the row and we looked at each other and I don't know if they were thinking what I was thinking, but in my, what was going through my mind at that point in time was, man, this is the first time that I've ever sat next to two black people on the airplane. In a million and a half miles, it was the first time that it ever happened. In fact, I've never sat next to a black person in first class. And the only time I ever see black people in first class, they're people who I recognize from television or sports. I've had the opportunity to be in some of the top Fortune 100 companies in this country in their C-suite offices, sitting across from the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Bill Gateses and the Jeff Bezoses, Amazon, Airbnb, Google, you name it, I've been in those offices and only the only time 
the people who look like me are in those offices or the people who are bringing in and out the coffee. I've had the opportunity to speak at about 90 colleges, graduations, law schools, universities, and I've yet to go to one that has an African-American population of over 5%. And unless we're prepared to sit here and think that somehow I was born with a genetic deficiency that made me less intelligent or less creative or less hardworking or less ambitious than all of those people in those places of privilege and power, then we have to have a very fundamental conversation about where everybody is. Look around in your group and think about the topics we're talking today and ask yourself, like, who's not here? Who should be filling these empty seats? It's the 50th anniversary of APSA. That's awesome. It makes me think of the way that we treated people who looked like me 50 years ago. When I think about the way that we treated people like me 50 years ago in this country, I think about the images that we have. First of all, I think about the images because we have like color photographs because it's such recent history. I think about the images of four little girls who went into a church one day and never came out again because somebody threw a pipe bomb in their Sunday school because they woke up black and nothing happened for decades. I think about the images of a 15-year-old boy who was beaten so badly that his mother had the wherewithal to keep his casket open during his funeral so the rest of the country could see what they had done to his son. I think about the images of three boys who looked just like me, hanging from trees, lit on fire in the middle of, of a public square in 1968 because they woke up with too much melanin in their skin. And when I think about those images, I don't just think about the four little girls. I don't think about Emmett Till. I don't think about those three young men hanging from the trees. I think about all of the people standing around the periphery watching it happen. I think to myself, how could you just be standing there? What are you doing? I would have done something. Why aren't you doing anything? But here I am sitting in an airplane with no black people. Here I am giving graduation speeches to classes full of privileged young white people. Here I am watching millions of dollars being exchanged in our economy and never once does that money ever touch the hand of the people who might need it the most. And I think about images 50 years from now when we're looking back on this time and what are people gonna be asking about me? This is the greatest human and civil rights crisis of our time. And we're about to hand it to not just the millennials, but lots of other young people. We're about to leave this at their doorstep and say, you fix it. Because there's a reason that this room isn't more diverse and every other room that isn't more diverse. And it's not because we're less hardworking or less creative or less ambitious or less intelligent than you. It's that since the foundation of this country, we've built structures to keep them exactly where we want them. And that's a travesty because we're missing out on their company. We're missing out on their ideas. We're missing out on their challenges, the diversity and their creativity. And as a result, we'll never know what we missed out on. Mass incarceration affects every single person in this room because one of these empty chairs represents someone who isn't here, who might've had the greatest solution to one of these ailments that you're trying to fix. And we'll never know unless we stop this problem. 2.3 million people in jail and prison right now. Another 5 million on probation or parole, one misstep away from the larger aggregate number. One in three black men born today will spend some time in jail or prison. I've gotten my time out of the way. One in three black women has a relative in jail or prison. 650,000 people come out of prison every year just to run into 50,000 collateral consequences of felony convictions that impede our successful reentry into society. 
70 million Americans have a criminal record. That means 70 million of us are out here walking around with a scarlet letter on our chests that will never go away and will impede our reentry into society. And it's not just a criminal justice issue. As you've heard many times this morning, this affects us at every social and cultural and economic and political and medical metric that you can possibly think of. The leading cause of death in this country of young black men, 18 to 35 years old, is handgun homicide. That is not true of any other people on any other place on this planet except the United States. It causes so much death that it accounts for the next nine leading causes of death combined for that same age cohort. Can you imagine a country where we remotely allowed that to be true of young white women from the suburbs? I can't, because we never would let that happen. There's a place on this planet where black women are 12 times more likely to die during childbirth than white women. It's not in sub-Saharan Africa. It's not somewhere in the West Indies. It's in Manhattan. Black women and white women experience breast cancer at almost the exact same rate, but black women are almost twice as likely to die from it. Why? Because we care about our lives less? Because we're not trying hard enough? Or is something else going on? Black women have a 71% higher chance of dying of cervical cancer. Again, why? Because we don't like ourselves as much as you? In my lovely city of Boston, welcome to my city, lots of great things here, except we're in one of the most racially and economically segregated countries, cities in this country. In fact, if you go out here to Mass Ave and you just go up a few blocks, there's an intersection there. We're standing in the middle of the intersection. You look one way and you look the other and life expectancy goes down by 25 years. One intersection. There are more segregated schools in this country today than there were on the Eating or Brown versus Board of Education. There is more representation in Congress until this year and during the period of reconstruction of people who look like me. There are more black people under correctional control today than there were slaves on the eve of the Civil War. And just to put a fine point on it, researchers estimate that over the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade, 12 million Africans were captured, enslaved, and killed. Last year, 11 million people went through our jails. We are recreating slavery every single year, and this is our legacy. We need a new civil rights movement. I don't know why the last one stops, but we need a new one. A lot of people blame the inertia on a lack of leadership. We're waiting for the next Malcolm. We're waiting for the next Martin. We're waiting for the next Rosa. Someone, anyone to come and take us to the promised land, but it doesn't come. And every day that we wait, millions more of us are arrested. Thousands more of us are incarcerated. Thousands more of us are dying. We need a new civil rights movement. The good news is, when I look out into this room, the reason that I'm here is that I do not just view you as professional medical caretakers and pediatric surgeons. I view you as the next civil rights leaders of our time. When I was 19 years old, I remember standing across from a police officer handing him thousands of dollars of cash that I had watered up and stuffed up in the wall in my bedroom. And I remember handing him the little scraps of marijuana that I had left over from the pounds that I was trafficking between Philadelphia and Boston. And I remember standing there looking at him and him looking at me and me registering the look in his face of one of contempt and disgust and frustration that I had become a statistic. And I remember looking at him and being like, oh God, I'm in trouble. 
But despite the fact that I was a black man in America in the 1990s, standing across from a police officer having just been caught drug trafficking, here's what trouble looked like to me. My mom and dad are going to be really mad. They might take away my brand new Razor cell phone. Remember that? They might take away the pickup truck that I bought with my 17th birthday money. And I remember the other dude who got caught on campus selling weed, he had to move all the way across campus. That was trouble to me. But here's what trouble looked like for everyone else in that position at that period of time. What I had done was a federal offense. I didn't know that. I knew it had broken a bunch of state laws, but I didn't know that one of them carried with it a 10-year minimum mandatory sentence. And because of that 10-year minimum mandatory sentence, the likelihood I pled out to that case was about 100%. And in pleading out to that case, being convicted of a drug crime in the 1990s, I would have given myself the moniker convicted drug felon. And in doing so, I would have deprived myself of the access to things that actually keep us safe. The access to housing, the access to employment, the access to education, the access to healthcare, the access to pro-social activity, and on and on and on. And depriving myself of the access to those things, the likelihood I committed another crime actually went up, not down. And each time I re-engaged with the criminal justice system, the likelihood I commit a further more serious crime went up, not down. Until that time, I victimized another person, at which point the government would have to send me to prison for double-digit decades, and I never have the opportunity to be here. I didn't realize how close I was to the edge of a rabbit hole that millions of people fall down in every single year and never get access to chairs like these. I never understood how easily that police officer, if he wanted to, could have pushed me over the edge of that rabbit hole and down I would have fallen disappearing from this world. But I didn't. And I'm here. I got to go back to college with my cell phone and my truck. I graduated from college and went out into the workforce. I worked for three years. I came out of the workforce and went to law school. I went to law school for three years. I came out of law school, had a wildly decorated career at one of the best DA's offices in the country, so decorated, in fact, that one day John Legend reached out and said, hey, man, do you want to do a TED Talk? I was like, hell yeah, John Legend. I would love to do a TED Talk. <laughs> we did a TED Talk and it blew up on the internet, and for the last three years, I've, I've traveled the country and the world with every celebrity and artist and athlete and activist you can possibly think of talking about criminal justice reform. In 2015, I sat across from the 44th president of the United States of America in his house and told him what I thought of his criminal justice policy. Last summer, I got to sit in Oprah Winfrey's house and listen to Oprah tell me how dope she thought I was. <laughs> Oprah. <laughs> in the last six months, I learned that I had a children's book, a rap lyric, and a documentary all made about me. And last year, just last year, Nelson Mandela's family chose me to be the Nelson Mandela Changemaker of the Year. I don't tell you any of those things to humble brag. I met Kendrick Lamar. I don't tell you any of those things <laughs> to humble brag. I tell you them to make this point. None of that happens. None of that happens if I don't win the lottery. The police officer who pulled me over and pulled me over in my driveway. The police officer who pulled me over was a white man. The police officer who pulled me over was my dad. And after he took me down to the station and he sat me in a cell for a little while, he took me home and he loved me. Just like he did every time I screwed up after that. Just like somebody did when you screwed up. Every time. Just like maybe we need to love the people who we interact with every single day just a little bit more. Thank you, thank you. I didn't know it at the time, but my father in that driveway was handing me a sword and a shield. The shield was protection. 
In other words, the privilege that I had in that moment to protect me from the bottom of that rabbit hole. And what I didn't know was that shield wasn't just for me. That privilege I could use for whoever I wanted. I could put people behind my sword, or even better, I could give them pieces of mind to protect themselves by building pathways for them to be here. And the sword was for the haters. Because believe it or not, there are some haters out here. There are people who still think that I should have gone to prison for selling them ki their kids weed on campus in 1998, despite the fact that seven states are now making billions of dollars doing so. There are people who ask me, well, how many chances are you going to give these young people? How many chances are you going to give these young people? And then I ask them, how many chances did you get, Chad? <laughs> or how many times did you just not get caught? There are people who talk to me all, all day about accountability. Hold these people accountable, hold them accountable. But as soon as I bring up the fact that everything that we sit upon, everything that we have in this country is based on the genocide of one people and the enslavement of another and the subjugation of women and children and immigrants, all of a sudden the accountability conversation goes out the window. Swords for the haters. And I didn't know I had these things until I became a prosecutor. I got to use them every single day, and it was a beautiful, magnificent exercise of privilege because I got to help people out the way that I wanted to. Here's the pro tip. You don't have to be a prosecutor to use one. Anytime that you get to interact with somebody that has less than you, you have the opportunity to reach down in your pocket, the privilege, power, and opportunity that you have to be in this room, your, your employment, the fact that you're a part of this cohort, that gives you a sword and a shield too. The question is, how are you going to use it? And how brave are you going to be? Because it's oftentimes when we have to be the most courageous that people need it the most. I'm going to give you an example of how I use mine. I met Stanley for the first time when he was 16 years old when he came into my courtroom for stealing cell phones. Uh, all the juveniles in Boston all of a sudden started stealing cell phones. We couldn't figure it out. And we figured out that, lo and behold, it wasn't because they were black and brown and bad. It was because Apple had put vestibules in all the malls so that we didn't have to t take our, uh, down, our, our iPhones that needed an update and send them to Apple. They just wanted us to now put them in these little vestibules in the malls. And those little vestibules would do what when you put a phone in it? Give you $100. It created an economy that Stanley and his friends could participate in because the days of like getting a paper route or babysitting a job and landscaping are gone in our urban core. And so Stanley and all of his friends were stealing cell phones, putting them in the vestibules and getting $100. Why? To buy pizza and sneakers and kid stuff. So there I was, Mr. Woke Prosecutor, when I saw Stanley, and I said something like, Stanley, this is bad. You're bad. This is bad. You're going to screw up your whole life. Your future is nothing. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. But I'm woke, so get out of here. A few weeks later, Stanley came back in my courtroom. This time, he had escalated to stealing Vespas. You guys know what Vespas are? You have Vespas? For those of you who don't, Vespas are the little red scooters that the uh, gentrifiers take from our neighborhoods to their tech jobs downtown. And what they didn't tell the gentrifiers at the gentrifier store is that they're really easy to hotwire, redwire, greenwire, go. And it created an economy in our neighborhoods because when they started to move in, our young people saw them as an opportunity because in the same neighborhoods, there are fences that you can drive a Vespa behind and someone will give you $200 and never ask you where it came from. And so there I was, Mr. Woke Prosecutor, and I was like, Stanley, what did I tell you? You're bad. This is so bad. You're bad. I swear to God, I'm going to incarcerate you. But not today, because I'm woke. 
go home. I was doing the thing that we all do as adults, particularly adults with high degrees and nice titles. I was telling Stanley what he needed to hear instead of asking him what he needed from me. And so a few weeks later, when Stanley came back into my courtroom, this time not for stealing a cell phone, not for stealing a Vespa, but this time because he had posed on Craigslist as somebody interested in purchasing motorcycles. He convinced two men to drive up to the suburbs with those motorcycles on their trucks, convinced them to take him and his accomplice out to the back of a golf course to test drive the motorcycles. And when those men took their motorcycles off the truck, Stanley and his accomplice would raise their jackets, revealing what appeared to be a firearm, and convince those men to leave. Two counts of armed robbery, two counts of possession of firearm, two counts of assault with a dangerous weapon. Uh, one of those charges is a life felony. The rest stacked on top of each other. There's not enough numbers to count the years that he was facing. So I said, what? What happened, Stanley? I, I just asked the question, like, what, do you, what, what did I miss? What do you need? Stanley didn't tell me about a gang he was trying to jump into. He didn't tell me about a gang he was trying to jump out of. He told me about when he was nine years old, emigrated from the Dominican Republic with him and his two older brothers to get a shot at a better education. Where would you go for that except for Boston? Now, despite the fact that he had grown up in a developing nation, he had never seen the kind of violence and poverty and trauma that he did when he arrived at the Fidel's projects just down the road. And how that violence and poverty and trauma slowly took apart his family one by one, his two other brothers going to prison, his father having problems with law enforcement and running away because he was afraid of getting deported, leaving Stanley and his mother in this place. And he told me about when he came home and he found his mother laying on the ground, crying and throwing up, not because she was sad, not because she was sick, but because she was so exhausted from the toxic environment that she was living in. Stanley told me about the feeling of putting that money that he got from those motorcycles on his mother's table, rubbing her back and saying, I've got you. I've always got you. You never have to worry. I said, I get that. I understand that, Stanley. But you, gotta, you can't rob people. Weren't you afraid? Weren't you afraid of the police? Weren't you afraid of prison? I'm supposed to send you to prison. Stanley looked at me and he said, is that what you think? Is that what you people think? That when I was out there robbing those men, the thought of prison ever came into my mind? I was worried about my mother dying. Do you think that my friends put handguns in their pants to go to high school in the morning? We're thinking about the 18 months in the house of correction that we might get? No. We're worried about what happens if we get caught without one. Stanley looked at me and he said, the criminal law is for the land of the living. We're out here trying to survive. The best piece of legal education I ever got did not come from the $150,000 piece of paper that now sits on my wall. It came from a 17-year-old kid in an orange jumpsuit reading at about a fifth grade level. That is the opportunity that we get every single day working with people from impoverished communities when they are not represented in the power structure. We get to ask them things and figure our way out of this mess. Because what do we know about Stanley and the tens of thousands of people that I see every single day in jails and prisons that are there because they didn't win the lottery ticket? Like them, I was born in a violent, impoverished neighborhood. Like many of them, I was immediately orphaned and spent my time in an orphanage. But unlike them, one day, two lovely people from white suburban Boston came and picked me instead of the other kid. I got to go home with them, 
I grew up in their white working class home in their white working class neighborhood. I had white working class friends and that shield of white privilege protect me from the bottom of that rabbit hole. And the fact that I spend my time traveling around prisons and juvenile detention facilities and homeless shelters and impoverished neighborhoods and there are so many people there that deserve to be here and they're not because they didn't win that lottery ticket drives me crazy. Because what do we know about them? That it's much less about their individual bad decision-making. It's much more about structures that have been put in place here forever. We know children who are conceived to moms living in toxic stress inherit that toxic stress epigenetically and it changes the way their bones, their brains, and eventually the way that they behave differently. And we can trace those changes all the way into prison. Those children then born into communities where they're suffering this toxic stress acutely. We call them all adverse childhood experiences. You heard a bunch about it today. But it leads to one result. 75% of the kids who were locked up here in 2015, 75% of them had on average three, three interactions with the child welfare system before the age of three for abuse, neglect, and malnutrition. Those are nonverbal children telling us, yo, pay attention to us down here or it's going to get much worse. We don't. Those children then go into underperforming schools, never learning how to read, not because they're black or brown or poor, but because we don't know how to speak their language. We don't understand the stress that they're coming to school with. We don't do anything about it except for blame them and shame them and expel them. We send that message to them every single day that they come to school. You're a bad kid. You're a bad kid. You're a bad kid. This is what the good kids look like. This is what the good kids do. These are the grades that the good kids get. You're a bad kid. You're a bad kid. You're a bad kid. And then all of a sudden they're teenagers. And we hand them the autonomy to decide whether or not they want to come back to this building anymore. And guess what? Many of them don't feel safe there. And they leave. And we call them dropouts. The good kids who stay in school, they gather up and do what adolescents do. Find people that are just like them. Is the football team, is the debate club, is the chess team, whoever it is, remember that period of your life when all you wanted to do was be with those people because that was your crew. Wildly, the children who leave school do the same exact thing. They look for people who are just like them. People who have been treated like shit by everybody. And for the first time, they find a group of people who loves them and wants to protect them and show them something that looks like accountability. We have a word for that too. We call that a gang. And when that young person who's been growing up in a place of toxic stress and poverty and violence all of their life, when violence visits them or one of their friends and they pick up a handgun, not because they're bad or black or brown, but because they're more accessible than a job in their communities, because mass shootings have been happening in their communities for decades and nobody showed up with a sign or a hashtag, where they've lost more friends this year on the streets than any combat veteran in Afghanistan or Iraq combined. They live in war zones. So when somebody visits violence upon them and they respond to violence, that's when adults, we say, okay, young person, okay, now I hear you, now I see you, and now I will spend all of my time, all of my money, and all of my resources on just you to arrest you, prosecute you, and lock you up forever. If an 18-year-old boy in Massachusetts kills another 18-year-old boy, he gets a life without parole sentence. That means we hang on to him until he dies at a cost of $11 million. I ask you as a public health community, what could you do with $11 million for children between the ages of zero and three? I ask you as a society, how did we get to the place where we are so committed to spending $11 million to keep a kid until he dies 
But the thought that we take any of that and do anything else creative, all of a sudden we're pulling our hair out. This is the place that we are at. The social determinants of health are not the individual decisions of Stanley and his friends. They're the structures that we see and participate and are complicit in every single day unless we do something different. And we have to. It's our moral imperative. It's our responsibility. And frankly, it's an opportunity for us because if this place was full of more diverse faces, who knows what we could be doing in here right now? You have the opportunity every day to exercise your sword and your shield, and I guarantee you that it feels really good. Shortly before my meeting with Obama, I mentioned, did I mention that I met with Obama? <laughs> Shortly before my meeting with Obama, I had a much more important meeting. I signed uh, a letter of intent, or I sat with a young man as he signed his letter of intent to play Division Three baseball at a school in New Hampshire. He texted me a few months after that and he said, I did it, bro. I said, what'd you do, Stanley? Stanley became the first freshman uh, in the history of his college to stand on the pitcher's mound and pitch in the national championship game. He pitched 11 innings, two strikeouts, or eight strikeouts, two hits. They lost, but the feeling that he had standing there on that mound that day could not even touch the, the feeling that he could get from being in a gang. He texted me a few months later to let me know that he had made the dean's list and he, and he couched it in terms of like somebody's playing a trick on me. And I said, why do you think somebody's playing a trick on you? He said, I've never seen a C in my report card, let alone A's or B's. I said, what do you think that's about, Stanley? He's like, I don't know, it's my environment. I wish adults would spend more of their time helping young people do good things and try to, instead of trying to catch us do bad things. Another profound piece of wisdom from Stanley. Just last month, Stanley, he's now a junior, stood in front of 2,000 of my colleagues as I was accepting an award. They wanted me to ask John Legend to come and introduce me. I instead asked Stanley because he's way cooler. <laughs> and Stanley stood in front of a crowd of 2,000 adults, many of whom did not look like him, and told them why it was so important that he was standing there. He said, I want to thank Adam for putting me back on the path that I was already on before. And it was so profound because we talk about rehabilitation and correction and healing, and really all we got to do is like get people back on the path that they were meant to be as soon as they were born and give them the same opportunities that we had. He also announced that he had changed his major to criminal justice and that he was applying to law school next year because he wants to be a prosecutor. And for a prosecutor, there's no better feeling than hearing that from someone that you prosecuted. That is the opportunity that each and every one of us have. And we have to, we must. Because in 50 years from now, we're going to be looking back on this time the same way that we looked at 50 years ago. We're going to be looking at images of this time being like, what? Number one in mass incarceration? Number one in mass shootings? Number one in racial disparities at every political and economic and social and health metric you can possibly think of? What? What were you doing? Why were you just standing there? I would have done something. Why aren't you doing anything? And in 50 years from now, when people are asking those questions of you, how is it that you want to be remembered? Because as Dr. Martin Luther King said, in the future, it's not the words of your enemies you remember, it's the silence of your friends. So do you want to be remembered as someone who looked in this room and saw these empty seats and heard all of these things and did nothing? Or do you want to be remembered as someone who tonight, tomorrow, just did something different? That volunteered in a different community, that visited a different community, that visited somebody in prison or jail, 
that went to read to some elementary school kids, that helped a young mother find housing, that helped a young man coming out of prison get reengaged, give voice to the voiceless, power to the powerless. Are you going to be remembered as someone who used your sword and your shield? Are you going to be remembered as someone who is one of the new civil rights leaders of your time? I guarantee you, if you choose the latter, if you choose to join my gang, wherever you are in 50 years from now, you'll be remembered as one of the wealthiest, happiest people that ever lived. Thank you very much. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.